it's a good it's a good story, isn't it? Um, it's so it's so good, in fact, that a large part of it gets told twice. It always reminds me of the um, Proclaimers song. Um, I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who uh, walks a thousand miles to fall down at your door. Although I suppose I would send my servant 500 miles. It would be closer to the truth. Um, it is strange, isn't it, how Abraham uh, sends the servant rather than Isaac, who is, after all, nearly 40 years old by this point, rather than him going himself. I think it takes a little while, I think, to, to see that what Abraham does in this chapter is actually very wise. It is an enormous expression of faith. Of course, it's entirely understandable that Abraham should, should want his only son to get married, um, especially because God's told Abraham that through your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And through, through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned. So the, the fate of God's great plan to save the world is all hinging on Isaac having descendants who will continue to worship God. So finding a wife for Isaac is very sensible. But why do it like this? Right, the logical option, surely, would have been to get Isaac to marry one of the local Canaanite women. Or at least let, Ab- let Isaac go back to his father's relatives in Mesopotamia for a bit and hope that he finds a wife there. But Abraham knows that it's not easy being a stranger in a strange land. And that is what Isaac and his family have been called to do. They've been called to live in the land that will one day be theirs. And if Isaac goes back and lives with his relatives, there's a good chance that he's going to stay there and he's going to forget God's call on his family. And Isaac marrying a Canaanite would be even worse. Now, we've got to be careful here. This is absolutely not because Abraham is racist. It's about the Canaanites' religion or lack of it. It's about their complete moral evil and rebellion against God. We already saw five chapters ago that these people are so committed to evil that God sent fire from heaven to wipe out their cities. Abraham's already seen his nephew Lot marry into these people and completely torpedo his family's faith. Abraham knows that if Isaac marries into this culture that's so dominant... He's only one man. He's just going to get his family absorbed into the Canaanites. And note that Abraham doesn't presume. He doesn't think, oh, Isaac has got such strong faith. Oh, he could marry a non-believer. He'd be absolutely fine. Um, Abraham has a realistic view of human nature. And he knows that marriage is a very significant relationship has a profound influence on you. Now Abraham doesn't want to do anything that's going to make it harder for Isaac or his children to keep the faith. So, Operation Send Isaac is off the table. Operation Marry a Non-Believer is definitely a non-starter. And that leaves Operation Send the Servant 500 Miles. It's, no, it's by no means the easy option, is it? It's a long way through hostile country. You know, no wonder Abraham sends his most senior servant, no offence James, um, and makes him, no wonder Abraham makes him swear the most serious oath. But if you look at verse 7, 
Look how confident Abraham is. You might have to flip back a page or two. Look at verse 7. Look how confident Abraham is that things are going to work out. See, he knows that if God's people are going to survive, then the servant's mission has to succeed. And God has promised to your descendants, I will give this land. God is going to make things work out here. Not for the first time, as we've been looking at Abraham's life, not for the first time we're seeing that faith shows itself in bold action on the basis of future promises. Faith shows itself by bold action on the basis of future promises. Why does Abraham insist on finding a believing wife for Isaac? Why last week did he buy a, a tomb in the promised land for his own wife, Sarah. Because he's absolutely certain that God's going to do what he's promised, even if it's way after his own death, even if it's hundreds of years in the future. Because faith isn't blind. Abraham's lived with God. He's seen God's faithfulness. He's seen God bring life and blessing and a great name out of nothing at all. If the promises aren't coming true then Abraham is making life much more difficult for himself here than he needs to. But if the promises are coming true, what Abraham does makes total sense. And that is the position every one of us finds ourselves in, and the question every one of us has to answer. Do we think God is serious about keeping his promises? Obviously, things are somewhat different for us today. We are not in the Old Testament where God's people were a single ethnic group who needed to have children to keep the faith alive. Although raising believing children is still a key way that we keep the faith alive. The future of God's promises isn't hanging on the preservation of one family line. None of us has any direct promise about our family line in the same way that Isaac had. But the principle of making a bold decision based on future promises, well, you could apply that to almost any area of the Christian life, couldn't we? Why are we working hard to run events next month where people are going to hear about the good news of Christmas? Well, one large reason is that when Jesus promised that he would come back to judge the world, we believe that he meant it. Which means that people need the chance to to hear and repent and believe while there is still time. Why why do we uh, take pains to pass on the faith to our children? Why do we take pains to help each other grow in godliness? Uh, Because we believe that when Jesus said he would build his church, come hell or high water, he meant it. But Jesus is not in the habit of making uh, thoughtless promises. And so everything we do as a church is built on that. Faith looks to the future, but it acts now. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, and you are very, very welcome to say, then there is a particular promise to you. Uh, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we believe that when Jesus made that promise, 
He meant it. And so he calls us to come to him while there is still time. Uh, in general, we're quite good at preparing for the future, aren't we? It's a month till Christmas. Okay, some preparation needs to be done there. We prepare for tests at school. We prepare um, an alarm to wake, up, wake us up on time to get us to church. Um, or if you're me, Johnny comes and bangs on your bedroom door at 7.58 and says, where are you? Um, we plan for planning a wedding. Um, let's make sure that we don't miss out on preparing for the biggest future date of all. The return of Jesus. Um, but given what this passage is about... I think it's entirely appropriate to take this principle of bold action on the basis of future promises and apply it um, directly to the question of whom we marry. Um, Because, of course, we're not in the situation where God's people are trying to um, preserve a distinct ethnic identity, but God is still clear that believers should only marry believers. Um, In passages like 1 Corinthians 7, um, 39, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. She must belong to the Lord. Um, Or 2 Corinthians 6, Uh, Do not be yoked together uh, with unbelievers. For what harmony can there be between light and darkness? This is a strong thing to say, isn't it? Why does God say this? Not because he is a killjoy, um, but because he doesn't want to kill our joy. Um, Because God knows that our joy and our life as Christians is to keep the faith and to please God and to, to grow in love for him. Human nature being what it is, marriage being what it is, it's going to be much, much harder for us to do that. It's going to be much, much, much harder for our children if we marry someone with fundamentally different convictions from us on the most important issues of life. It's worth saying that um, some of us, through perhaps decisions made in the past or um, decisions made before we um, came to faith, we may be in the difficult position of being married to someone who doesn't show our love for the Lord. Uh, And we feel the tension in that. Um, And we pray for our spouse. And and so these things uh, may be uh, hard to hear, hard to bear. Um, But here too we know uh, that the Lord gives forgiveness and he gives grace um, sufficient for every situation. And we need to hear that he gives us church as family. Um, And we need to hear that God God encourages people in such a position that by faithfulness to the marriage and by prayer and by patiently demonstrating how much knowing God has changed us, that we may well be able to win our husband or wife for Christ. Uh, But the the resolution God wants us to make only to marry a believer, um, that may be a deeply um, costly decision. Um, much as it was, of course, for Abraham and Isaac. Um, If we're in a position where we're free to marry, we are probably not surrounded by large numbers of eligible, committed Christians. Um, And so committing only to marry a fellow believer, it may mean committing to singleness, or at least to a period of painful waiting. Um, Faith is costly for some, um, more costly in this area perhaps than in any other area of their life. But it is worth it. Because the day is coming, friends, when God will fulfill every last promise to every last one of his people. When that glorious day comes, no one will regret a single one of the costly decisions that they made for his sake. Um, We will be uh, so grateful that he gave us the strength to make those uh, sacrifices, that he enabled us um, to keep the faith, to fight the fight, finish the race, 
um, and to inherit the crown of righteousness. To hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, we certainly see Abraham's faith in this narrative. Um, But as we move beyond the first nine verses, and don't worry, I'm going to move more quickly, otherwise we will be here until Christmas. Uh, In verses 10 to 67, in glorious technicolour, we see God's faithfulness to his promises. We see how God kindly, graciously, sovereignly, arranges all the circumstances of life, the ordinary and the extraordinary, um, to make sure that his promises will be kept. Let me just say that one more time. God kindly uh, and graciously and sovereignly um, arranges all the circumstances of life, both both the ordinary and the extraordinary, both the big picture and the minute details, to ensure that his promises will be kept. In this specific instance, of course, he provides Rebecca as a wife for Isaac. He does it in such remarkable circumstances that everyone is convinced that the Lord must be at work. Um, It is, uh, in a very real sense, a match made in heaven. Um, But of course, God doesn't suspend the laws of nature in this passage, does he? He works through ordinary means and ordinary circumstances. I can think of at least five things that God works through. First of all, God works through the servant's prayer. Um, what a great servant this guy is. He, did. he doesn't even get a name. And for like six, 50 verses, he behaves with like consummate faith. Um, he realises that he's powerless to solve the situation. God's entire salvation plan is hanging in the balance. He's 500 miles from home. He's well outside the land where he's seen God work. Um, but he knows God isn't limited by space. And so he pleads with the Lord to help him. And God very often begins a great work by moving his people to pray. Now, secondly, God works through the servant being sensible in what he looks for. Um, the servant sort of mixes prayer with circumstances and then sees what happens. And he asks God to be at work in the ordinary and God very graciously um, does so. And of course the servant is looking for the right sorts of things because anyone who, without being prompted, offers to, walk, to give water to ten thirsty camels um, who can uh, apparently drink up to 25 gallons of water in one go each... Um, who offers to do this with a three-gallon jar, which means dozens, possibly hundreds of trips down the steps um, into the well and back up again, um, all for the camels of a man that she's, she's never even met until five seconds ago, is going to be kind uh, and generous and uh, not afraid of hard work, um, which are good things to look for. And thirdly, God works through the, um, the sheer providence that before the servants even finish praying, Rebecca comes out and... Uh, turns out that not only does she water the camels, but she's, she's not married, and she's uh, the grandson of Abraham's brother, um, and it's the first town the servants come to, and well, very graciously makes it very clear what he's like. And, of course, the servant bows down and worships the Lord. Praise be to the Lord, verse 27. This is a key verse, verse 27. The God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master... 
you know, no wonder um, Laban, when he hears the story in, in verse, verse 50, he's like, well, that was clearly the Lord. Um, I've got nothing to say. Um, fourthly, God works, Laban, fourthly, God, God works through the servant's determination to carry out his mission. Did you notice he won't even sit down and eat with Rebecca's family until he said his peace? And now Laban is probably is a bit of a sharp character, Laban. We'll um, meet him again when we come onto the Jacob narrative. But he's probably trying to get as much out of the servant as he can. He's seen the, the nose ring, he's seen the bracelets, he thinks there's probably more where this came from, and maybe I can drag out the negotiations. And the servant, on the other hand, in verse 55, uh, having uh, been tried to, they've tried to persuade him to stay, and he says, no, I want to get back, I want to complete the mission ASAP. Um, and fifthly, God works through the faith of Rebecca herself. Uh, we don't know exactly how much um, her family knew of the Lord, um, but we can see in verses uh, 31 and 50 that they, they suddenly worshipped him. Um, but actually, Rebecca has her own little call of Abraham moment in this chapter, doesn't she? Um, she's called to leave her family in Mesopotamia and travel 500 miles to the land of Canaan which she knows nothing about um, on the promise that if she does she'll be blessed and she'll get to be part of God's big plan to save the world and she willingly steps out in faith um, so ordinary prayer ordinary having your head screwed on um, Ordinary, extraordinary coincidences, um, ordinary courage, and ordinary, extraordinary faith. Um, through such things is the kingdom of God built. Um, it, God doesn't even speak in this chapter, and he doesn't directly intervene. But the whole narrative is deeply Theological. If you look on your word sheets, you can see how often the key words are repeated. God's kindness, God's kindness, God's faithfulness, God, God grants success, 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 blessing, blessing, blessing. It's the Lord that has done this. It's the Lord who's blessed Abraham and shown him such kindness. And Isaac is blessed and, and he's happy and comforted, verse 67, and... And they, they both live happily ever after um, until the kids come along. Uh, but that's another story. Just as we close. Of course, we must understand that God's faithfulness does not mean that he will necessarily provide a spouse for every single one of us, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, God's promise to give the land to Abraham's family, it depended on a wife for Isaac. Of course, we're not exactly in the same situation. So much as I thought about this idea, I can't honestly say that this chapter provides us with a blueprint for dating. Um, walk 500 miles, well, I'm all on board with that bit. Um, find a camel, sit down by a well, wait for one of the locals to offer the camels a drink, and if they also happen to be your second cousin, crack out a ring there and then, put it in her nose, uh, and then begin negotiations with uh, her family, and then ask her what she thinks. 
Um, in non-related news, please check out tenofthase.com for copies of my book, The Camel Method. Um, of course, um, the Lord will, in many cases, generously provide a spouse um, as he works through ordinary prayer and ordinary wisdom and ordinary courage and ordinary coincidences. Um, but to apply this chapter properly, we need to look um, to what God has promised. Every single Christian. Which is to say that we are all promised the ultimate, scaled up, 3D, full colour version of the Abraham promise. Um, perfect land, the new creation spanning the whole earth, um, a people beyond count, a blessing that lasts forever. And until that day, God will keep his promise to preserve his people for that day. He'll do it by the ordinary and the extraordinary. God will keep his promise to build his church, come hell or high water, by ordinary and extraordinary means. God will keep his promise to provide for his only son, Jesus Christ, a pure, radiant, willing, faithful bride, that is the church, person by person, soul by soul, year by year, God will keep that promise. It can be very hard to believe that when the personal cost of faith is high. Uh, but like Abraham, we've got lots to look at. We can look to God's faithfulness in this chapter and in other places in the Bible. We can look to the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness on the cross. We can look to the history of the church and all the ways in which God's kept the church despite the odds. Uh, isn't it mad that we're still here, 2,000 years on, despite twists and turns galore? And we can look to our own lives. Um, think about the story of how you became a Christian. Um, or if, like me, you were born into God's household. Um, think about the story of how God has kept you a Christian. Um, what what uh, ordinary coincidences did God use? Was it a chance meeting with a Christian friend? Was it a chance encounter with the Bible? Was it a chance sermon, even? Uh, whose prayers did God use? And um, whose thoughtfulness and wisdom and determination uh, help, have helped you? Uh, which blessings has God provided to show his faithfulness? Um, which dark nights of the soul over the years have uh, forced you to um, utterly depend on God? Which fellow church members have said or done or asked something that's uh, encouraged you in the faith? Which idols has God torn from their places? Uh, where has God drawn you back to himself when you've wandered away? The answers to these questions, they may not be the sort of thing that get put into best-selling Christian biographies, um, but they are the true drama of our lives. Uh, these are the stories that we will be eager to tell and retell in heaven. And why not share them with your neighbour over coffee? Um, and the answers 
to those questions. The, the extraordinary, ordinary ways in which God um, miraculously um, keeps us all in our faith week by week in order to build his church. Um, they are a wonderful proof that God is faithful to his promises. That he will build his church. Uh, however grim the Church of England attendance figures might be. Whatever decisions people make. Uh, which means, of course, that we can step out in faith. We can make costly decisions. As we've already discussed. Because trusting this God to keep his promises is... That's very sensible, I think. It's very sensible. Shall we pray? Lord God, this is a, a wonderful chapter to, um, to see what faith requires, sometimes bold, costly, sacrificial action that will look different for each one of us, maybe to take that first step towards becoming a Christian, or maybe... Um, to give something up or to make some hard commitment. We tremble, Lord, at the um, decisions that lie before us. And yet, Lord, we know that you are faithful to your promise to build your church, that you, you will keep every single one who comes to you. Lord, please uh, remind us through uh, lovely stories like this and through the um, ordinary, everyday miracles of Christian life. Please would you demonstrate your faithfulness to us such that we, we cannot turn away from such a faithful God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.